from Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, through chapter 12, verse 14. And Pastor Bill will be preaching God's word for us. This is God's word. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. They began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who are with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you has a sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. The man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. And we are currently in a short teaching series on the topic of rest, something that most modern Americans don't do very well. We know how to work, probably work way too much. We know how to be busy and we know how to check out of life. We know how to be entertained. We know how to be distracted by our entertainments, but that's not the same as rest. We're not very good at resting. We're not good at quieting our souls in the middle of a frantic world, a world that is in constant exhausting motion. We don't know how to find rest in the world in which we live. And so our resting tends to look busy. It tends to look just as frantic as the rest of life. And so we're unable to put our phones and our devices down just for a few moments and just let them be. We have music and podcasts constantly running in the background of our lives. We binge watch one show right after another, after another, after another, after another. We talk about having quality time moments because we don't have the time to give quantity time to other people. We struggle to stop. And we don't know how to be refreshed at the deepest level of our beings so that the thought of sitting quietly, just ourselves and the Lord together, that feels unproductive, it feels unappealing, unattractive. So for the last several weeks, we've been taking a look at resting on Sunday mornings. We saw three weeks ago that God rests. It's one of the first things that we learn about him, that he's able to let go of creating, let go of producing, let go of making, let go of doing, and just be, just enjoy his world. It's a really important part of our God and part of his personality, and we've seen that since he rests, we now rest. That led us to consider the Sabbath command. It's arguably one of the two distinctives that set Israel apart from their neighbors. 
they did two things that were very different from everybody else. They circumcised their sons and they took one day out of seven to rest, to Sabbath. It was an important part of their identity as the people of God. We've seen now that there are two commands, two reasons, I'm sorry, for the one command of the Sabbath. One reason that grows out of creation, that because God rested, we now rest, but a second one that grows out of salvation. That because God has saved us and rescued us, we don't have to work to save ourselves. So we get to take time instead to remember what God has done and the reasons why he did it. And so we rest to renew our love, to renew our passion for this great God and for everything that he's done for us. Today's passage in Matthew 12 also deals with the Sabbath, but it does so at two levels. On the surface, it points to a kind of activity to do on this weekly rest day, a prescriptive kind of activity. It teaches us that resting is not simple inactivity. The Sabbath is not simply for being an indulgent lying around all day kind of a thing. It's not a mini vacation. It's a day where there's good activity, activity that affirms and blesses the people around you. That's the surface level of what's taking, on and taking place in the passage. Below that level, however, there's turmoil. There's a clash of worldviews, two fundamentally opposed orientations to life that come out in how people approach the Sabbath. And Jesus draws attention to these two different orientations, orientations that don't simply express themselves in how people approach one day out of the week, but orientations that impact every area of life. And they do so violently. You can see some of that violence when you consider what Jesus says about the Sabbath. He says there are two times when you should get up and do something on your weekly rest day. One of those times is when you're doing something necessary, when you're meeting a need that cannot be met if you don't act, like the disciples when they're picking grain in order to satisfy their hunger. So one, you act if what you're doing is out of necessity to meet a need. Secondly, you act if what you're doing is out of mercy, out of a desire to relieve suffering, you come across someone who's struggling. There's something that you can do about their suffering, like Jesus healing a man with a withered hand. And Jesus says, don't make people wait one more day in order to help them. Don't wait one more moment. Do what you can for them right now. What he's just done is he sketched a beautiful world, a Sabbath rest that's restful for you, but that also rests other people, where you meet needs and relieve suffering, where you do good, that's what Jesus says to the Pharisees, and their response to him is what? They want to kill him. Verse 14, they just heard him say the Sabbath is for doing good, and they choose to use the Sabbath to do evil. They went out and conspired against him how to destroy him, how to get rid of him so that they never had to deal with him again. Now, how does that make a bit of sense? Here's a guy who's advocating meeting needs, relieving suffering, creating a wonderful world that you actually would want to live in, and they can't stand to hear one more word from him. And they're showing you just how much antagonism there is in their worldview against the life of faith. Which is a little strange, because ordinarily when we think about the life of faith, we think, well, the, the opposite is what, a, sort of like a secular kind of a life, where, where the secular world would say, we reject God. We don't need a divine being. We don't need one to relate to. We certainly don't need one to tell us what to do or how to live our lives. We'll do well enough on our own. Thank you very much. That's one worldview that opposes God. Here's a second one, however. 
one that we often think about or think about nearly enough, it's equally antagonistic. But it cloaks its antagonism by appearing religious. It also does not want God on his own terms. That's why the reaction that you see in this passage is so extreme. But it uses religious language and religious rituals in order to assert its independence from God. And so it's a counterfeit. It looks similar to faith, and yet it's radically different from faith, radically opposed to true faith. That means that if you're going to be a person of faith, if you're going to approach all of life, including rest, from a faith-filled perspective, you can't just think about this opposition that you get from a secular world. You also have to think about this opposition that you get from the religious world. That's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at religious opposition through the window of rest, using rest kind of as a case study here to see something really, really important about religiosity. So we'll look at three things today. One, we're going to look at the kind of life that a religious approach produces. Secondly, we'll look at the things that make a religious approach appealing to someone. And third, we'll talk about how to escape the trap of religiosity. So the results of religiosity, what makes it appealing, and how to escape from it. First, the kind of life that a religious approach produces. Think about what's coming out of the Pharisees' lives here. Verse 2, they have no concern for hungry people. They see people who are hungry, and in their perfect world, they would prefer those people to stay hungry. On top of that, verse 10, they have no concern for a person who's suffering. I say it differently, they're more concerned for keeping the right rules than they are for relieving someone's suffering. So the first thing that you see coming out of their lives is they lack compassion. They have an absence of love for people in need. They have an absence of something good, but they have the presence of something bad. They're nasty, they're mean. Verse 2, they're critical of Jesus. Verse 10, they set Jesus up so they can accuse him. Verse 14, they conspire against him to destroy him. What do you see coming up out of their lives? You see real ugliness here. And as we talk about on a regular basis, that ugliness is tied to an inner ugliness. We often call it idolatry. It's this longing and desire for certain things out of life that this is the natural outcome of. They have this inner source that produces a life that's consistent with that inner source, and it's a life then that makes sense to them. That means that they don't see themselves as unattractive human beings. The opposite, they actually think that they're treating Jesus and they're treating other people the way that Jesus and other people should be treated. They've convinced themselves that they see the world correctly. Religiosity is very scary. These are not good people. They are not living good, respectable lives. They're not living a life that you want to have, that you want to be just like them. These are not people who are raising kids that you want your kids to play with. They're not raising kids that you want your kids to date. These are not people that you want to have as your in-laws. But they think that they are good, respectable people. And it's because they've set up a system, a religious system that tells them whether or not they're good. You hear them reference that system when they challenge Jesus in verse 2. They say to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Not lawful there is that reference to their system. Don't be confused here. They're not saying that your disciples are breaking God's law. 
It's nothing in God's law that says you can't pick grain while you're walking along on a Sabbath day. We actually saw a couple weeks ago in Exodus that God's command only has two principles, one that you rest and two that you worship. But the Pharisees have something much more involved in mind when they say lawful. Lawful for them refers to this very long list of highly detailed regulations, a list that the rabbinic authorities put together and essentially added to the scripture, elevated it to the same level as what God said. And the Pharisees believed that by obeying these very stringent extra commands, that they could earn their own goodness, that they could live in such a way that they would deserve to be with God. They would not have said it this way, but in their world, it was a means of putting God in their debt, a way of saying to God, since I've done everything that you wanted me to do, you now owe me. You owe me here. You owe me kids who obey me, kids who respect me. You owe me a decent job with people who appreciate me. You owe me a house in a neighborhood that I would like. You owe me a decent life here, and you owe me a good life in the future because I have done everything that you wanted me to do. It's that layer of laws and the reasons behind them that's in the Pharisees' minds as they confront Jesus about what they see his disciples doing. So the question in this passage is not, should the Sabbath be observed? That's clear, it should be. It's not the question. The question is, how should the Sabbath be observed? And why should the Sabbath be observed? The Pharisees have their own answers to that, which are different from the, what God thinks. That's why Jesus addresses them in the way that he does. It's not that Jesus thinks they are too rigorous in the, how they're approaching the Sabbath. It's that Jesus thinks they have the completely wrong system altogether, that their approach is the wrong approach. And so he quotes verse 7 from the prophet Hosea that God desires mercy, not sacrifice. That what drives God is a concern for mercy, a concern to extend himself to people in suffering and in need, not to make their lives harder, to make their lives better. See, it's no accident that all of this controversy in chapter 12 follows the end of chapter 11. At the end of chapter 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, upon you, excuse me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It sets up the contrast there between this light and easy burden and chapter 12, the Pharisees and their system that is anything but light and easy. They designed the system to generate their own goodness, but all it does is burden people. And Jesus says it's because they are more interested in sacrifice, in ritual rules and regulations, in ceremonially, ceremonies and handling those ceremonies correctly. They're more interested in sacrifice than in mercy. They'd rather work for their goodness than receive God's mercy, and so they insist everybody else has to work for it too. They put love for rules above love for people. It's the inner source, this inner orientation that creates the antagonism that ends up spilling out, hurting people and trying to destroy them. Now, I want you to take a moment. I want you to try to imagine what it was like to live in the world that they created, a world that wasn't simply full of rules and restrictions, but it was a world full of people 
who were watching you to see that you were keeping the rules and the restrictions. You have to really make sure you get the insanity of this passage. Jesus and his disciples are doing what? They're walking on a Sabbath day. It's a day of rest. They're out walking. They're walking through grain fields, minding their own business. And there, as they're walking through grain fields, are what? There are people watching them, people standing there. Now, if you happen to be standing there for whatever reason, you see somebody walk by, they might catch your attention, but why would you keep watching them? What is it that's making them want to observe what Jesus and his disciples are doing? Well, the passage tells you that as they're watching them, they're also evaluating them. The Pharisees are analyzing what the disciples are doing, and they're asking themselves, is that okay? Are those guys doing what's okay, or are they out of line? And they decide, yep, that's wrong. But they don't keep that evaluation to themselves. Instead, they speak up in public, drawing everyone's attention to this perceived wrongness. They're shaming, embarrassing the disciples in front of Jesus, who's their rabbi, which means he's responsible for their behavior. The disciples are now the cause of shame and embarrassment for their small, tightly knit community. If you ever had that kind of embarrassment, you know that that sort of just takes your hunger right away. You no longer have an appetite. Can you imagine what that was like for these guys in that moment? I know some of you don't have to imagine it. You've experienced it. Some of you have experienced it personally way too often. That sense of other people watching you, making sure that you didn't screw up and embarrass the people that you're with so that you didn't embarrass your family, your friends, your church, so that you don't embarrass those people in front of your relatives, in front of your neighbors, your school, the larger watching world. It's an awful world to live in. It's an awful world that the Pharisees create. It's a world where you work hard to hide so that no one can ever point out anything bad. It's not a world that leads you to confess your struggles so that you can get help. It's a world that isolates you, that keeps you from reaching out to other people, and it teaches you not to reach out to God because it teaches you in that moment, this is what God is like as you see him through his images. God is critical. God is always watching, not because he loves you, not because he wants to help you, but he wants to call you out in a way that exposes your flaws to everyone around you. When you lead with sacrifice... Religious rules and regulations, not mercy. You can't create a world that invites people to be known or to reveal themselves. You're not creating a world where they can actually get help. A world that says, if you're having trouble making your life work, let's talk. <laughs> because I'm sure there's real help for you. A critical, shame-based world will not produce the openness among the people of God that we have to have in order to produce health. Instead, when you're struggling, all it will do is drive you into yourself. Prioritize sacrifice over mercy, and you'll create a world where people hide, where they don't share their faults, where they can't grow. You'll create a world where people are burdened, heavy laden, and all alone. That's point one. 
That's the kind of life that religiosity produces. It sounds horrible, so point two, why would anyone want that? Okay, I kind of understand why the Pharisees would want that. They're at the top of the heap, as it were. They're at the top of the game that they set up. They're the religious experts. And so they get to be in charge. They get to dictate to everyone else how they should and shouldn't live. And that's powerful. That's the kind of stuff that'll go to your head. Once you get a taste for that kind of power, you want to hang on to it for its own sake. And here comes Jesus challenging their power, their authority over other people. He not only lets people do things, does things himself that the Pharisees don't want him to do, but he claims he has the right to make those decisions. He's challenging the Pharisees' right to make the decisions. He could not be clearer. Verse 8, here's his rationale. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That's an implicit claim to deity. Why does the Sabbath exist? We've talked about this. God takes one day, sets it aside, and makes it holy. God is in charge of the Sabbath. He sets its terms and conditions, which means what? He's the Lord of the Sabbath. When Jesus then claims that he is Lord of the Sabbath, he's setting himself on the same level as God, which has implications far beyond what you do and don't do on this one day. Jesus is saying that he's the supreme authority over God's people, and by implication, the Pharisees aren't. Their authority is subordinate to his. And he has the right to tell them, not that they've done a good job and that they're doing the best that they can do. He has the right to tell them, no, your system is wrong. You've missed it. It does not line up with God's heart. It does not line up with God's intentions. When you understand what's going on here, it makes sense, right? The ones in charge want to stay in charge. Jesus comes along, threatens their system, and so they conspire to destroy him. It's twisted, but it makes sense. I get it. But why would anyone else buy into this system? What's in it for them? You only buy into something if it actually works for you. Why would you buy into something when you're not in charge and it makes your life harder and it produces all of these ugly results? If you're playing along, you have to be getting something out of it. So what are you getting out of it? That's when you realize that there are things that are just as appealing as power. Things like safety security, limited responsibility. Those are the things that the Pharisee system offers to anyone who's in it. See, if I buy into this system, if I say I'm not an expert in this field, in my own field I'm very confident, I'm very comfortable, I know what I should and shouldn't do, but in this area, the religious sphere, I don't feel like an expert. If I'm not an expert, I might say the wrong thing. I might do the wrong thing. I'm going to do something that embarrasses me. I'm not an expert, but someone else is. I'll follow their lead, and I'll do what they say. If I buy into that, what comes out of that? Well, one, I now have personal security. I now have a way of knowing that I'm good. I'm following the rules. I'm doing what I'm told. I'm coloring inside the lines. And so I don't need to build a friendship with God on my own. I don't have to do the hard work of trying to understand all of life from God's point of view. I'm doing what I'm told, and therefore, I'm okay. It gives me personal security. It also gives me communal affirmation. Everyone else knows that I'm good. 
If they're all out there watching me for whatever reason as I'm walking through the grain field, I don't have to worry about what they're thinking. I'm keeping the rules, so the only thing that they can think is that I'm okay. I get personal security, communal affirmation, and now I have limited responsibility. I don't have to invest myself in a relationship with the Lord where I walk with him, where I learn to understand what the Spirit is saying to me as I read through the scripture. Why go through all that effort when I can just do what I'm supposed to do? That means what? I can put in my time. I can come to services. I volunteer to serve. I show up at CG and then I'm done. Do you see why people would go along with this system? It's safe, it's secure, and it's limited. Everything that a system guarantees, everything that keeps you out of the messiness of building a relationship with God and a relationship with his people. And that's why this system is not only dangerous 2,000 years ago, it's an ever-present danger in the church. The danger that you would become dependent on a few religious experts to tell you what to do and how to do it, to tell you what to think and when to think it. The danger that your relationship with God would become limited to various church-related activities, to programs, structures that someone else sets up for you, that you would equate those activities, those structures, those programs with being a spiritual person. Now, you do need the community of God in order to grow. You need to be in relationship with other people of faith. But that's very different from being completely dependent on the systems and structures of that community for your spiritual growth. How do you know the difference? If you're relying on structure alone to fuel your spiritual growth, you show up and put in your time. If you're relying on structure alone, you'll start to dry up inside. By themselves, those structures cannot refresh your soul. So if the only time that you're feeding your soul is when other people are around, when they might be watching you, you won't grow spiritually. But you'll fool yourself into thinking that you are because you'll look like you're doing what good spiritual people are supposed to do. You'll be doing the things that you're supposed to so that you don't get embarrassed and so that you don't embarrass the rest of the church. And you won't realize that you're shrinking inside until something happens that interrupts those structures. Something like a global pandemic that shuts all of those structures down. And it's only when those programs are gone that you realize then how dependent you were on them for your spiritual vitality. How you've not been practicing being a spiritual self-starter. How you're not real sure even what to do in order to feed yourself. See, the reason that we're looking at religiosity this morning is because the Pharisees don't exist in just one time period safely locked away in the past. Religiosity, religious systems, they're always a threat to the life of true faith. That's point one, the kind of life that religiosity produces. Point two, why that would be appealing, which brings us to point three. How do you escape from this? if you've fallen into it? How do you get out? It's only by God's grace. And when you look at this passage, you can't help but just see his grace all over it. I love that Jesus does not hate the Pharisees. I love that he treats them with mercy. That amazes me. 
Think about it. They have co-opted the law of God for their own purposes. They've elevated themselves as the religious experts above God's people. They refuse to recognize Jesus's authority. And what does Jesus do? How does he respond to them? He talks to them. He engages them. Treats them with dignity and respect. Don't miss that. It's not a little thing. Don't let that fly underneath your radar. The only reason that they're talking to him is because they want to criticize him and they want to trap him and he doesn't blow them off. He doesn't ignore them. Let that amaze you. Put yourself in his position. Wouldn't you be tempted if you were him to just sort of close your eyes, stick your fingers in your ear and go la 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 la? Jesus doesn't do that. He's not mean. He's not nasty. He actually engages them at a level where they can hear him, where they could potentially respond in a positive way. He's working overtime in these moments not to teach his disciples, not to teach the crowds who want to learn from him. He's working overtime to teach people who have shown no interest in learning from him. And so he digs out scripture passages that they would be familiar with. David and his men eating bread that was only for the priests, but doing so without sinning. The priests slaughtering and butchering sacrifices on the Sabbath and yet still being guiltless of working. Jesus takes those examples that they would have been very familiar with to show them that their approach to God, their system, can account for the biblical data. And then he does something amazing. He says, your system doesn't work. Let me offer you an alternative one. He quotes from Hosea, showing that mercy supersedes sacrifice in God's economy. He's offering them a new way of making sense of the biblical data, the data that their system can't explain. He says, here's a system that will explain it because this one actually is the way that God thinks. Now, as an aside, this is a really important part of your own spiritual growth. This is something that will safeguard you. When you come across something in scripture that does not make sense of your way of thinking about God, thinking about who he is, thinking about what he wants. When you come across something that doesn't fit into your system, don't just keep on going. Don't just skip over that. Instead, let humility enter and let wisdom say, hmm, apparently I'm missing something somewhere, someplace. I must not understand something important about God. I need to sit here for a while and understand this. I need to figure out what's going on. Had a great interaction this past week with a young man that I've been talking to for the last several months. And he was talking about some of the, the theology that he has. And he says, well, what do you think? I said, well, I understand why that's appealing to you. Here's the place where I'm struggling. Here's this passage, and we read a passage together. And he looks at me and goes, yeah, that, that doesn't fit, does it? And then led us into a conversation where we start to rethink how he's thinking about who the Lord is, how God reveals himself to his people in scripture. When the Bible challenges your system, when it challenges your belief, listen, listen to it. Accept, hmm, I need a different approach to God, I need to learn. Now here again in Matthew chapter 12 is grace. The Pharisees refuse to do that. They don't back down. They don't admit that they're off somewhere. They don't admit that they've misunderstood God or his intentions. Instead, they hang on to their system. Very next scene that you get after the grain fields, they're all together in a, in a synagogue and they ask Jesus a gotcha question. They're in their minds. And Jesus, by God's 
to express God's grace does what? He keeps talking to them. And he asks them, would you all care enough about an animal to relieve its suffering on the Sabbath? Now that's actually part of the backstory of things that were taking place in Judaism at that time. The religious authorities had been debating that question and the majority of rabbinic scholars had concluded, yes, even if an animal's suffering is not life-threatening, they use this example of an animal stuck in a pit, even if the animal's condition is not life-threatening, it's okay to relieve its suffering on the Sabbath. Jesus takes something that they already agreed on, something that they would not fight him about, and he asks them, aren't people more important than animals? What's he doing there? He's coming alongside them, moving onto their turf, trying to help them see the broader implications of their own logic. He's merciful to them. Understand this. They have dug a pit for themselves. They are stuck in the pit. They can't get themselves out. Jesus comes along on the Sabbath and does what? He tries to pull them out. He's living out the mercy that Hosea talks about. He wants more goodness for them than they want for themselves. And that's what they need because they don't have a lot of goodness. Religious people are incredibly broken and they don't see it. They're not as good as they think they are. The Pharisees are working harder on the Sabbath than Jesus' disciples are. The Pharisees are working overtime to earn their own goodness by keeping all the rules and regulations. It's an awful lot of work, and they don't see that. On top of it, they're not interested in doing good on the Sabbath. Jesus tells them this is what the Sabbath is for. It's for doing good, and immediately they turn around and do evil. They plot on the Sabbath to destroy the Lord of the Sabbath. They don't see how broken they are, and Jesus loves them. You can use the illustrations there as metaphors. He wants to heal them even more than he healed the man with the withered hand. He wants to feed them better food than the grain that his disciples ate. He wants to break through their crushing system to take the heavy burdens that they've given themselves and exchange those for his easy and light ones. Why? Why does he want that? Because God desires mercy. And so he does good to those who hate him, who want nothing to do with him. And he does that because that's the only way that the Pharisees can have a future. Think about these guys. They cannot have a single interaction with Jesus without sinning. Jesus is perfect. He's never done anything wrong to them, and they are completely unable to be good to him. How messed up do you have to be if you can't be good to a good person? They can't see him as he walks by. They can't go with him to synagogue without doing something wrong against him. They can't see, be in his presence without sinning against him. If their future depends on their own goodness, they have no future. And God in his mercy wants them to have one, just like he wants you to have one as well. And so Jesus offers to do what no one else can do. Jesus offers to work so that you don't have to. He offers to work in order to earn your salvation by being good for you. That's why he says at the end of chapter 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, 
for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He's saying he'll do the work of earning God's approval. He'll obey God in everything. He will only on this earth ever do what God wants. And if you're yoked to Jesus, then the goodness that he earned counts for you. What's his becomes yours. And because he's yoked to you, what's yours becomes his. So he takes your sins. He takes your failures to be good. He makes them his own. And because they're his, he ends up being shamed for them. Not you. The father forsook him on the cross, abandoned him. The shame of what you and I have done was too much to bring into the throne room of God, and Jesus endured that shame in our place. Shame far worse than anything that you've ever experienced on earth. It's one thing to know that you've embarrassed your parents or your friends, people that you love and respect, people that you only want to see smile at you because they're proud of you. It's one thing to see their smile fade, to feel the distance that comes with their frown. It's a completely different thing to be an embarrassment to the one, the only one, whose approval you have to have in order to live, whose smile you have to have because in his smile is life and in his frown is death. Jesus knows what it was to see God frown, to have God be disappointed in him, to have God turn away from him, to have God say, you're not good enough to be with me. And Jesus knew that day was coming while he walked on this earth. And instead of running from it, he ran to it. Book of Hebrews tells us in chapter 12 that Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame. He despised its shame. He looked down on that shame. Why? Because of the joy that was set before him. You think, what was that joy? What, what, what was the joy? What was so, worth so much that he was willing to take on that shame and say, it's not, a, I don't care about that. I care about something way more. It was the joy of knowing that what he did means that you will not ever be embarrassed in God's presence if you're yoked with him. And if you're not embarrassed in God's presence, you have no need to be embarrassed in anyone else's either. It was the joy of having you with him, yoked to him for all eternity, while you are eternally unashamed. That's the mercy that God loves. Mercy that would give you eternity where you cannot ever be embarrassed. Not because you earned it for yourself, but because he earned it for you. That's a God who's worth coming to. Come to him. Come to him today. Come the first time. Come the millionth time. See his mercy. Let it move your heart. Long for his mercy. Receive his mercy. Do that and you'll find rest for your soul. He will rest you and he'll set you free to be merciful to others in exactly the same way that he's been merciful to you. Oh God, set our hearts free. Lord, help us to know that it's because your eyes look at us that it doesn't matter who else's eyes do. That your eyes are the only ones that really matter, that really count. And Jesus, since you have absorbed from us anything that was shameful, there's nothing that those eyes will ever see that causes you, Father, to frown at us. Lord, let us live today in your smile, 
And Lord, let us, as in, our, in the freedom of your smile, of living in your smile, freedom, let us, in the freedom of living in your smile, turn around and smile to others so that they see that smile too. Lord God, bless your people and rest them today in Jesus' name.